and I'm Barbara Walters, and this is 2020. 2020. 2020. 2020. It is 2020. Happy New Year. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling of something. In case I fall off my chair And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs Clowns to the left of me Jokers to the right Here I am stuck in the middle with you from Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Also in California, on KFOI, Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, and KGOE in Eureka. In Oregon, on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, KEPW Eugene. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU, Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP. Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR, New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV. In Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ. In Seattle, Washington, KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR. Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing the globe five days a week, usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. But today it's me again, Nicole Sandler, holding down the holiday duties here at the Bradcast. And I appreciate you being along for the ride. On this first episode of the Bradcast for 2020, we'll actually take a bit of a break from politics and, well, take on a bit of philosophy and attitude as we not only embark on a new year, but a brand new decade as well. We'll speak with a woman named Jude Morford, founder of a movement called Women Standing. She'll explain what it is and what she does, but basically it's her way of dealing with the inhumanity shown by our government at the border crossings. And at a time when Hey Boomer has emerged as a pejorative for those of us born between 1946 and 1964, we'll talk with the author of a new book called What Happened to the Hippies? But we'll begin, as usual, with a look at the latest news. With Congress still on recess and much of the nation not returning to their desks until Monday, January 6th, it's a slow news time, but in Trump land, there's always something happening. So the Senate's impeachment trial plans are still up in the air. It's 32 days until the Iowa caucuses, 33 days until the State of the Union address, and 40 days until the New Hampshire primary. While we're talking about the elections, we may as well bring you up to date on fundraising. Candidates have until January 31st to release their quarter four fundraising totals, but the numbers are starting to roll out. And once again, Bernie Sanders blew away everyone in the field. He pulled in a record $34.5 million with an average donation of $18, bringing his 2019 total to more than $96 million from over 5 million individual donations. Mayor Pete Buttigieg also had a big haul, $24.7 million with an average contribution of 33 a side note on Mayor Pete, he's no longer the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. After eight years on the job, he carried out his last official act as mayor on New Year's Day. 
So I guess he's all in on campaigning. Jill Biden is next with a $22.7 million haul, his largest quarterly take since he jumped in the race. Andrew Yang's campaign announced they had raised $16.5 million in the last three months. And Tulsi Gabbard rounds out the field of those who've reported as of press time, with $3.4 million. Now, we know that Elizabeth Warren has raised at least $17 million. That's where she was last week when her campaign put out an urgent call saying they desperately needed funds. So she'll probably fall somewhere in between Bernie, Pete, and Joe Biden. We'll see where that shakes out. And the rest of them, we'll wait and see. Already, There's one new casualty of the day, and that's Julian Castro. He announced he's out. I have a feeling we may hear that of a few more once the rest of the fundraising numbers come out for quarter four. We'll see. In other news, it was a scary couple of days outside the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad. U.S. troops fired tear gas and rubber bullets at protesters who descended on the embassy for a second time on Wednesday. The protests by hundreds of supporters of an Iranian-backed militia began on Tuesday when they broke through a gate and set fire to a reception area as U.S. diplomats were barricaded inside the embassy. The militia fighters finally retreated across the Tigris River on Wednesday after days of clashes with U.S. and Iraqi security forces guarding the embassy and the personnel in Baghdad. The conflict began after American airstrikes on Sunday killed 25 fighters of this Iran-backed militia in Iraq. The Trump administration said those U.S. strikes were in retaliation for last week's killing of an American contractor and the wounding of an American and Iraqi troops in a rocket attack on an Iraqi military base that the U.S. blamed on the militia. By the way, the U.S. strikes angered the Iraqi government, which called them an unjustified violation of its sovereignty. I don't know about you, but having Donald Trump in charge of this makes me all the more nervous, as I am about what's going on in North Korea, too, where Kim Jong-un on Wednesday said that his country would continue building its nuclear arsenal and would soon unveil a new strategic weapon. Kim's comments came after his deadline passed for the U.S. to begin new talks about denuclearization and sanctions relief. He had warned he might take a new path if the U.S. ignored his ultimatum, raising concerns that North Korea would soon test an intercontinental missile and a nuclear warhead. Uh, Yeah, stay tuned. In his annual year-end report, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court John Roberts touted the independence of the judiciary and the role of U.S. judges in promoting civic education. He wrote, quote, In our age, when social media can instantly spread rumor and false information on a grand scale, the public's need to understand our government and the protections it provides is ever more vital. That sounds like it's aimed at one specific person. Hmm. By the way, Roberts will serve this year as the presiding judge, at Donald Trump's Senate impeachment trial. Stay tuned. Well, we lived through it last year in California, 
and now Australia is burning. The Australian state of New South Wales has declared a week-long state of emergency as raging wildfires forced evacuations all along Australia's eastern coast. The fires have destroyed at least 350 homes and left at least eight people dead and 17 missing in New South Wales and Victoria over the last week alone. The state of emergency empowers authorities to close roads, order mandatory evacuations, and, quote, do anything else we need to do as a state to keep our residents and to keep property safe. Tourists have been urged to vacate a 155-mile stretch of the scenic southern coast before Saturday. It's really taking a toll. Ecologists at the University of Sydney estimated that 480 million mammals, birds, and reptiles have died in the fires that have swept Australia since September, including a third of the koala population in their main habitat in New South Wales. It's just heartbreaking. In Israel, Bibi Netanyahu, I I guess, is taking a cue from Donald Trump, birds of a feather and all that. Uh, He said, Netanyahu said he would seek immunity from corruption charges, likely delaying any trial until after the next round of elections in Israel, which happened in March, when he hopes to have a majority coalition that would shield him from prosecution. Unbelievable. Meanwhile, while we were out on our break, we learned that former New York City mayor and multi-billionaire Democratic presidential candidate Michael Bloomberg used prison labor to make campaign calls through a third-party vendor, the Mike Bloomberg campaign. He's Mike now. Did you notice? Not Michael anymore, but Mike Bloomberg. The 2020 campaign contracted New Jersey-based call center company Procom, which runs call centers in New Jersey and Oklahoma. Two of the call centers in Oklahoma are operated out of state prisons. In at least one of the two prisons, incarcerated people were contracted to make calls on behalf of the Bloomberg campaign. According to a source who asked for anonymity for fear of retribution, people incarcerated at the Dr. Eddie Warrior Correctional Center, a minimum security women's prison with a capacity of more than 900, were making calls to California on behalf of Bloomberg. The people were required to end their calls by disclosing that the calls were paid for by the Bloomberg campaign. They did not, however, disclose that they were calling from behind bars. I wonder if they pretended to be Bloomberg supporters. The whole thing is just really creepy. The Bloomberg campaign confirmed the arrangement in an emailed statement to The Intercept. They said, quote, we didn't know about this and never would have allowed it if we had. We don't believe in this practice, and we've now ended our relationship with the subcontractor in question. This was, uh, according to Bloomberg spokesperson Julie Wood. So the campaign said it didn't know about the arrangement between Procom and an undisclosed campaign vendor until The Intercept inquired about the story. The campaign then ended the relationship on Monday and said it has asked vendors to do a better job of vetting subcontractors in the future. I'm kind of speechless. I think this is disqualifying for a presidential candidate. Seriously, he had to hire a call center to make calls. That's usually what volunteers do in a campaign. Just saying. And finally, with the beginning of 2020 came a slew of new laws, including the statewide legalization of recreational marijuana in Illinois. And this is a cool, fun fact. The state's lieutenant governor was one of the first in line to make a legal purchase. The day before the law went into effect, 
Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker granted more than 11,000 pardons for low-level marijuana convictions. Elsewhere around the country, 21 states and 26 cities and counties raised their minimum wage, and several others will follow later in the year. Colorado's red flag gun laws now in effect, which allows family and other authorized parties to petition to temporarily remove firearms from someone deemed a danger to themselves or others. Tennessee, though, is moving in the wrong direction. They enacted new regulations making it easier for residents to get a concealed carry gun permit. Texting and driving is now officially illegal in Florida. Way to go, Florida. And plastic bag bans have started in Oregon and Albuquerque, New Mexico. I'm sure there's more. Obviously, that's only a quick sampling of some of the new laws. Check your municipality for new laws that might impact you this year. All right, we'll take a quick time out and we'll be back with our first guest and we'll learn about women's standing. It's a way to deal with the horrific actions of this Trump administration one way. We'll hear about it next. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit if you can by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, in for Brad and Desi, for the first broadcast of 2020. Since Congress is still out, and we already took a look at what's happening in the news, I thought we'd take a break from politics for the rest of the show and take a look at how we're dealing with the national disaster we've been living under for the past three years and then some. So we'll take a step back with two interviews today. First up, A woman who's dealing with the Trump administration's separation of children from their families at the border in a very unique way. On the line with me now is Jude Morford. She's, um, well, uh, somebody who contacted me, a listener of the program, and thank you for that. And she's got an amazing story. Jude wrote to me to tell me about a visit down to the border where kids are being caged families are being separated, and human rights violations are happening in our name, and it's not okay. 
And so Jude has been telling me about her, her various trips to places. And I thought, this is an amazing story we need to talk about. So I invited her to come on the program and tell us what this is about. And I guess we should start with your handle online is Women Standing. Tell us what this is about, what you do. Well, thanks, Nicole. Um, well, first of all, Women Standing, is, as anyone is interested, it's one word because there's many organizations. Um, it was started back in 2006, and it happened because of our friend Mike Malloy. Um, I was living in Fremont, and I was helping out at a little um, laundromat, and I would have uh, 1090 uh, radio on and listen to Mike. And he talked about a, an attack that I think it was I think it was Israel on Lebanon. I mean, it was one of, you know, the ongoing issues throughout the world. And there was so little that was mentioned about the attack on Iraq because things were kept quiet. So we never, I don't remember seeing a lot of visuals about that. We would just hear from, you know, commentators and such. So Mike talked about this photo in the New York Times. And I went across the street to this little store that was run by a wonderful Muslim family who became very good friends. And sure enough, there's a photo of a young mother being dug out with her infant child, um, you know, with boulders and cement all around her. And it just, for some reason, impacted me. And I went to a friend, we closed the laundromat, and we went down and stood on the North 45th Bridge, which is the exit to the University of Washington. And that became a ritual of every Sunday, we would go and just stand there. And then flowers came, you know, people would come and stop and talk with us. And about six months later, um, I just had the sense that I was supposed to start carrying boots from the soldiers. And so it became, um, it's become kind of a walking memorial to the lives of our service members and then expanded around the world. Um, there was a, a lady that had contacted me from uh, Spain this many, many years ago that was very moved by it. And she wanted to take that into North Africa. Wow. Now, however that looked like, I, I don't know, and I haven't heard back from her. But throughout the years, um, you know, wherever I go and the other women involved in it either carry flowers or combat boots. So they are my traveling companions. And I'll stand at bases. Um, like I live close to McCord-Lewis Joint Base here in Washington. Um, I go there quite often. And it just is a, it's so a quiet stand with the boots in front. And then one goes in kind of an into, maybe it sounds strange for nowadays because we're so topsy-turvy, but it's a contemplative state. And we just stand with our eyes closed for as long as, you know, we can, we just know when it's time to leave. But when this business came up with the children um, in early summer, um, I just started hearing, I just started hearing the children crying. You know, I, I would wake up oh and being a grandmother of 11, uh, like so many other women, it just, and men too, it just impacted them. And, and then I just felt the urge and the calling to go down. So my eldest daughter and I went down in, that's when I first emailed you uh -huh. um, and sent you the photos. So we made reservations and went down and um, to El Paso and then went to Clint and Tornillo, which are the two mm. border sites. Wow. Now, so many people before us, you know, when this all came about and it became national news, there was an onslaught of individuals from all over. There was a man from New York that drove his camper out and stayed in Tornillo um, up um, on the complex, but it was part of, um, it wasn't part of the, 
the ICE or, or Border Patrol. It was more of the, I don't know what you call it, more of the community place. So they couldn't tell him to move. Uh-huh. But he stayed there just as a visual. And that's what I very much wanted to do. But it, it has, uh, it has cha- it's changed my life again. It's opened up um, more of a compassionate understanding. And I didn't go down with the purpose of thinking that, yes, we're going to make changes, because not, that's not what women's standing is. We end up just placing ourselves at different spots. And there we are just to be a visual for peace. Wow. So you stand there. Are, uh, and I'm sorry if I missed it. Are you holding a sign? You have boots in front of you. And what else well, is going on? That's just it. I, um, whenever I do and the other women that I've contacted, we just place the boots and flowers in front mm-hmm. and then step back and then just go into a, a quiet meditation with our eyes closed. Sometimes it's half an hour. Sometimes it's been as long as three. So when I hear, you know, Nicole, when I hear about people saying, gosh, you know, how come there aren't thousands of people in the streets or or millions? I always look at them and I says, when was the last time you went out? I'm not saying you personally, Mm -hmm. but when, you know, goes out and stands and just puts their body there and just is quiet and reflective. It's real. It's a real powerful um, cleansing, focusing kind of intention. Um. The um, the first time that we went down to Chornillo, which you go through acres of pecan trees, it's kind of deceptive because it's so lovely. It's like a, a country environment. And then it opens up into this enormous complex, you know, of cement and buildings. And it sits above the Rio Grande, although you can't see the river at all, but you're aware of it. And there is, a, uh, there is an energy, um, you know, anytime... Anytime there's water and then vastness, there is an energy that's palpable. So we ended up finding a spot um, to park the car. There's a, there was a series of, um, it was a toll area at one time. So there's five different areas that cars goes into, but they've closed that. So you can drive down, right, because it's a port of entry also. Uh-huh. But because it was so... Um, I won't say intimidating, but it was profoundly serious because we, my daughter Carrie and I were aware of what was going on. The children supposedly had been moved um, because of the outpouring of people. And yet the context I've made in El Paso um, say that that's not true. Now, you can't see the tents. It's the other name for Tornillo also is, um, um, they call it the tent city. Right. And they had, and uh so we went from there uh, down into the complex after we did a peace stand, which took me, it took me a few moments to kind of get my, my bearings because I didn't know. We try to be respectful. We never step over the line, but sometimes we'll come up to the line. But that's not the purpose to create any kind of diversion. Again, it's just a symbolic, symbolic representation of this is, this is what peace is. Right. This is, it's and it's quiet and it's respectful. But when we went up to very, very close, probably about 50 feet from where the detention center is, um, the whole energy changed. Now, I don't know if it became part of my worry and my concern for my, my daughter. I, I'm, I'm not sure. But that time in the distance, we saw several guards. And I thought for sure one of them had an assault rifle. Right. And they were dressed in black. 
so it was kind of, it was really ominous. And um, we turned around and ended up, ending up, you know, coming back out of there and then went down to um, the Clint Detention Center where the children are now. And it's very, um, it's on a main highway and it's, um, They've, it's very sanitized looking. I guess that's the best way that I can say it. You know, you don't see anything. The chain link fence, um, it's on three sides, but it's an enormous complex. So rather than going into that complex, we stood outside with the, um, you know, it had the Clint border and protection sign and did a peace stand for a while. And when it was time to leave, when I was picking up my boots and getting into the car, because we had a a rental car. Uh, we were followed then um, by border patrol oh my. for many miles. Yeah, like right behind us, like maybe half a car length behind. Real, just to and intimidate it, you, or for why? I think. Well, I'm assuming. I'm wanting to know. But you know, Nicole, when we went down the first time, it was less than a month after the Walmart shooting. Mm. Uh huh. And every, everyone. I mean, I was. I was. I was pulled over by sheriff. Um, and everyone was gracious and kind that that's kind of the odd part of it. Even on my second visit, when I went alone, cause I just, I had to go back again and it took, um, there was something inside that just kept moving and moving and moving. Uh, everyone I encountered the border agents, we were, we, I, I ended up finding a spot that's in, there's so many ports of entry, but they're not necessarily open to the public. Um, there are enormous gates, you know, on the wall that can be unlocked from either side by border patrol. And we did a peace stand there, which was incredibly beautiful, contrasting that enormous wall that went on forever and ever. And a border guard um, ended up coming, um, unlocking the gate and came down and talked to us for about 15 minutes. About and then took us on the other side to where I could do it. You know, I left one of the white flowers there, um, symbolic for, you know, for, uh, you know, what it was that we were there for. Right. Did the agent who spoke to you understand what you were doing? I th- I think so. Um, he kind of looked for a while. He wasn't concerned. I mean, you know, I'm a 71 year old woman, <sighs> and. Um, very non-confrontational. My daughter's just a regular old gal. But there was, um, um, you know, a moment where, because I knew right away when I heard heard the gate start to come back, that I did open my eyes. And he just stood and watched. He didn't do anything aggressive. But I, in retrospect, um, there wasn't really dialogue about what was going on. Because the purpose, again, is not to accumulate information. It's just to, to go down and be witness and just have kind of that vortex of peace be opened and remain there. And I know maybe that sounds odd, for again, for the times that we're in, but that's what the movement is. Right. Each place we go, it's like now I can at this moment see my place down at all those different spots all around the country where I've been, but particularly down where the children were. And on my, like getting back into my last visit, um, that day I went into uh, Clint detention 
you know, past the gates and parked my car. And it's, uh, and I knew it was a site because in, in the summer when they had, when they were really concerned about the children not having diapers and mm. all those things, there was a, um, a very interesting article and it had a small family that were in front of, uh, Clint has beautiful blue doors when you enter, you know, into their main complex, um, kind of their inner sanctum. And their family was there, and they had purchased all these diapers. So I knew that that was the exact mm. right place. But when I got on, when I opened up the car, because I was going to go up and, and see and talk to someone, um, I heard these the beautiful sounds of bagpipes. And for some reason, they sounded gentle, mm. which usually bagpipes don't. But I walked up, and sure enough, inside there was someone, and it was playing bagpipes, and we didn't make a lot of connection. Uh, and the door was locked. Um, but I often wondered if that had been piped out for the children, if that was something they were using to, to comfort. So when I, when I left that front area, I came back and then just did a quiet stand there, you know, for the intention of all, all of those that were included in there. Um, but it took a different kind of, um, I won't necessarily say strength. It took a, an awareness to be okay by myself in an area so foreign that had so many complications going on, but I felt fortified by it because again, I travel, you know, I travel with a component of peace and it just, uh, she's never let me down. How, you know? how many years, how many years have you been doing this? Wow. So how many uh, sites have you visited or do you know? Have you kept track? No. I mean, I go I go out probably three or four times a week and stand somewhere. And I always have the boots with me. The boots are always over my shoulder every time I get out of my car. And like I share with people, it is a walking memorial. And oftentimes, if I run into families, uh, which I have, they'll put uh, their son or daughter's name in it and they'll go into the boots. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> My cats hear me out. I hear. I know this is a personal question. How do you fund these trips? Obviously, you, I'm, you live in the Seattle, in Washington State? Uh-huh. Yeah, I live just outside Seattle. Uh-huh. Um, I'm a retired hospice nurse. I had a small IRA <laughs> that pretty much is depleted. I just take care of things myself. Wow. You know, if I'm, if I'm supposed to do it. And I have to do it. Because if I don't, I find an unsettledness that goes in me. And, you know, Nicole, this last time when I went down, um, I wanted to go back and I wanted to go down actually into the port of entry in Ternillo. That was just, that was so heavy pressed upon me. And when I, when I had, when I was driving down the the highway um, and got to the area where they have all the pecan trees and everything, I had this kind of sense of churning going on, C-H-U-R-N, this this Mm -hmm. movement of, you know, what, you know, like preparing and yet not trepidation, but this awareness of how serious and, you know, you need to be aware, you need to be, you know, especially when you have your eyes closed, there's another sense that comes in, Um, but there's also a sense of protection at the same time. So when I came back onto the complex, off to the left was where the huge detention tent city was. To the right takes you down into the port of entry, which I was just going to do a quiet peace stand. Well, as I made my way through there, they had the steel, 
you know, um, devices that come out of the ground that you have to cross over. You can't go backwards. Oh, right. The the spikes. Yeah. And then gates that you had to go through. And as I made them down, um, you could see probably 150 maybe cars coming back from Mexico. And so I get down and I realize that there's no entry out. So I have to go over. I have to go into Mexico. Oh, God. So that was, um, but in that journey, um, I met incredible people again. It was probably about a two-hour process from the time of entering, going into just on the other side of, you know, the the bridge and turning around. But I ended up, they, you know, they had to search, search my car. Right. And, and. But everyone, you know, that's kind of a strange thing. I, I didn't run into anyone that was not as gracious and kind as they could be. But again, I'm, you know, I'm a white woman. I'm older and I'm visiting. So whether or not that's a component to it, I don't know. But I took it as I was fortunate to find, to be able to come back and let people know that there are wonderful people that are trying to do some good work. Although I never made it in to see anyone in the detention centers. Um, I did meet a border guard at one of the little hotels that I was staying at in, in uh, Clint, who was a sweet soul that had come from out of state because they're putting a lot of people down on the border. Yeah. And anyone, I guess anyone new coming into custom and border are immediately put down there. Wow. But, you know, he'd, he'd buy things for the children. You know, they had color books, the things that you'd hear about. So to see those tangible works in action to me was important. And, um, you know, it, it brings me to tears, you know. I hear, uh, I hear. Well, you know, it's your uh, way of, of, I guess, dealing with, all the injustice that's going on in the world and it brings you peace. Everyone does it, you know, I guess in their own way. And it, it's up to us to find out what works for us. So uh, women standing, if people want to get involved, is there an organization? Is there a place they can contact you? There is. It's an old website we had. Um, like I said, it's one word and it's plural. It's womenstanding.com. Okay. Yes. And gosh, you know, it, it means a lot. Um, Nicole, that you were really interested and in. you've been real respectful for these past few months about connecting with me because it's something very dear to my heart. And um, if there is anyone, um, we would, you know, love to talk with them or, or just on their own, you know, find something that, you know, we're involved in a lot of protests, but we're all always on the periphery of it, gotcha. you know, there, but still kind of just doing, well, you know, what it is that we're yeah. No, it's, I mean, I'm so glad you found something that works for you. I mean, some people, it's meditation. This is a kind of a meditation, but you actually go places where I guess there's energy that mm-hmm. you work in in concert with, <clears throat> if that makes sense. Yes, no, exactly. Exactly. I remember when I was back in D.C., um, the different places, um, you know, that, that was a whole other area. You know, we were out at Quantico. Um, there was a protest there, and it just—it's been—it's um, been a very humbling but a very powerful journey, and it has kept me centered. It's kept me aware. I'm very active politically in a lot of things, but when I'm out with the boots, I don't engage because uh, that's not the purpose of it. Um, 
but I've met a lot of wonderful people. In fact, during the heights of the war in um, in Iraq, we were on the bridge, and there was there was my daughter and, and granddaughter, and all of a sudden I heard this man yell out, "What are you doing?" Just and I turned, and I said, "Well, we're standing for peace, and we're you know honoring honoring our soldiers that have died." And he came up, just aggressively came up, and he says. I need you to forgive me. He says, I encouraged my son to sign up and he was just killed. <gasps> and oh he was on that bridge pacing, pacing. Oh. And he says, um, he says, I'll never forgive myself. I'll never forgive myself. It was nothing we could do, but he ended up turning around and he says, thank you. He says, thank you. So it's those, those moments that all add up into something that uh, to me is, is very endearing and very powerful. And, um, and it's it's a good way for me to live my life and those other women that have chosen to, to take this kind of path. Well, great. I, I'm so glad you found this and it's something that works for you. We all need to find whatever it is that gives us, that brings us peace, especially in mm-hmm. such, you know, crazy, turbulent times as these. Jude Morford, it was great talking with you. I've enjoyed seeing your pictures and hearing your stories via email. I thank you for reaching out to me. I really appreciate it. Oh, well, thanks for your graciousness and kindness. And I enjoy your program. You have such great people. I hope this, this will kind of hold its own, but uh, um, I wish you well. I wish you well. And, and the same to you. Have a very, very happy new year. You too, dear heart. Take right. care. Jude Morford of Women Standing. Find her at womenstanding.com. Hearing her story, I realize we must each find our own way of dealing with the ugliness facing us. As for me, I began volunteering at my county's animal shelter each weekend. I walk and play with the dogs, and most importantly, I help match them with humans looking to adopt. It takes my mind off of the heaviness and ugliness of our situation, and the politics, for a few hours anyway. And when I place a dog with a new family, well, it's just an amazing feeling. Up next, a new phrase entered the lexicon in 2019. OK Boomer blasted on the scene as an insult to those of us born between 1946 and 1964. Well, as the song goes, the dirty effing hippies were right. We'll embrace a return to hippie culture next. I'm Nicole Sandler, guest hosting today on the broadcast. Five major corporations now own over 80% of all media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Your support helps us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations across the country. You can make a real difference by supporting independent media. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. Join us at Brad bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. We've elected sociopath after sociopath for the last 30 years to every level of government. Many of them slaves to corporate parasites that gorge themselves in the public trough, while the most vulnerable people in our society, the sick, the young, and the elderly, go wanting. Billions of dollars in profits are being snitched up the expense and suffering of our neighbors by the jackals that comprise our pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies, both of which pipe their diagnostic wisdom and their fake concern right into our homes via TV and radio commercials. 
These legal drug dealers now sell their wares with impunity. And the insurance gamblers perform a slick game of three-card Monty right in our living rooms. Most of these drugs have a list of caveats that would make even the most dishonest used car salesman blush. And the insurance hustlers change the rules of the game just when it's time to pay up. Profiting from the suffering and pain of others, profiting from human frailty. Universal health care, it's too expensive, we're told. Gas bag talking heads on TV and radio have been complicit in this deception while being handsomely compensated for their assistance. I'll say it again, the dirty hippies were right. So that's just one verse from a song you can find in its entirety on YouTube and well, that I've embedded, along with today's show at bradblog.com. Of course, I can't play the actual uncensored version here because of the FCC, but you get the gist. I'm Nicole Sandler, in for Brad today on the Bradcast, and yes, the DFHs were right. So I was intrigued when I got a pitch for a new book called What Happened to the Hippies? On the line with us now is Stuart Rogers, the author of a new book called What Happened to the Hippies? Voices and Perspectives. And I got to say, when I got an email about this book, I was intrigued because I'm, well, I guess I'm an old hippie. Uh, I'm at the tail end of the baby boomers. I was born in 1959. I just turned 60. So um, I grew up in the 60s, obviously, I was, you know, a child who lived one month in the 50s, uh, too young in the 60s to participate in things like Woodstock, but also, you know, graduated from high school in the 70s. Um, it's it's a time that we look back on fondly, although lately uh, there's a phrase that the young people are using, OK, Boomer, that's kind of a is supposed to be like a diss on us. But I think there's a lot to celebrate for the hippies. Uh, Stuart Rogers, what made you write this book? Well, as I pointed out kind of in the introduction of my book, there was a period uh, years ago, and I actually started on the book about 20 years ago, uh, where I was pretty confused about myself. I had, you know, been what I consider a hippie back in the, uh, when I was 20 or so. Uh, and I just felt lost, I guess. And so I began to put together various phrases and song titles, et cetera, that seemed to make sense to me. And so then I began to write a few articles uh, around that. And then recently, uh, I guess about two years now, uh, I finished what I had planned to write uh, and tried to get it published. And then the publisher had a good idea that um, in addition to my memoirs, uh, that I could get other, quote, old hippies involved. And so uh, I ran uh, an ad on Craigslist in about 25 different markets and recruited ultimately 53 other, quote, old hippies. And these are people that uh, called themselves hippies back in the day and, and lived through the, the 60s, early 70s, and asked them to write a before and after memoir about their experiences and um, anyway, uh, it came together with a whole book uh, after much coordination. And, um, you know, it was written, again, primarily as a way of saying um, these experiences were important to us then. But just as, or let me say more importantly, is that the values that we were trying to pursue then 
uh, are still legitimate today, uh, and that uh, maybe this is a good time to look back on that and and see what we can learn from it. Absolutely. If you if you could impart one lesson to young people, the I guess Gen Zers <laughs> are the new group. Um, what would you tell them? What what lessons can the hippies share with the kids today? Well, uh, I think. Uh, for one thing, uh, we were an optimistic group, mm-hmm. an idealistic group, uh, and the the idea of an age of Aquarius was important to us. Um, even though we didn't quite understand what that meant, we, we felt like that we were the vanguard of something great happening in America and that we were going to change the world for the better. Uh, I think today, in light of what appears to be conflict in various places and the struggle of just making a living, et cetera, I'm not sure that young people or old people, for that matter, feel very optimistic. Um, you know, I don't think they see a way for their lives to be better or that the world as a whole is better. And and quite a few seem to think that, you know, this is the end. The United States and the world is, is going to hell. Um, we bring a certain level of optimism, and that's because I think uh, the hippie movement was based on the idea that human beings are, are good people and that uh, given the opportunity to uh, be supported and, and to express that, that people will be loving to each other and, and not have conflict with each other and lesson which is don't don't give up on humanity uh uh you know again we we hope you'll find the same uh, belief in humanity that uh, that we do you know and things it's not that things were so great back then i mean think back to the 1960s we were embroiled yep. in the war in vietnam a ridiculous war we had no business being in that stretched on seemingly forever we had a draft something we don't have now um a lot of young people chose to you know go to canada rather than get drafted to fight in an unjust war and protests were numerous they were everywhere people took to the streets um why do you think we're not in the streets more today. Certainly, we've got a lot to protest. I, I think that's a great question, uh, and I wonder that myself sometimes. I, I, the war was a unifying factor, if you will, of people who were thought of or even called themselves hippies, uh, because the Vietnam War was obviously, as you say, unjust, unnecessary. But I have to say, honestly, the fact that the draft uh, was prevalent and that a number of people who were against the war were being forced to fight it uh, made the public in general and probably young people in particular uh, much more adamant and therefore more likely to go to the streets. Mm. I mean, today we have volunteers who are fighting these endless wars all over the world. Um, and because they're volunteers, um, you know, I don't, I don't think we take war as seriously. You know, I don't think it affects most of us day to day, and therefore, you know, there's not a lot to protest. Um, you know, I think that's sad, but it's it's probably that it doesn't affect us as much as, as it did then is, is the difference. Right. And, and uh, then, you know, also think back to the early 70s, uh, if we're looking at parallels, and we had Watergate. And Richard Nixon, who would have been impeached 
if he had not listened to those around him and resigned, knowing that he would have been impeached. Um, it was a totally different atmosphere then, even though there was a lot of contention between Democrats and Republicans. There was a lot of um, uh, disagreements. It, it didn't even come close to approaching what we have going on today. Um, I, I agree. Uh, although, you know, again, you got if, if you look in a broader perspective, we had a president then that felt he could do whatever he wanted yep. to. I think Nixon's quote was, if the president does it, it can't be illegal. Yep. Um, I think we have a president today who's doing the same thing. Uh, but uh, you're right. And, and the other thing I think to look at is the whole idea of fear-mongering as a political uh, ploy has really um, come out uh, in the last few years. Um, and therefore, uh, the idea that we need to be afraid of each other, that we need to close the gates and let anybody, any foreigners come in, uh, the idea that people who look different than you are probably going to try to hurt you, this whole idea of fear-mongering uh, has created this uh, uh, conflict, if you will, uh, that, that all of us seem to be entangled in. Um, and that's unfortunate. Uh, I think, uh, again, what I would hope hippie perspectives bring to this is that we don't have to be afraid of each other, uh, that we can both have different points of view about the same set of facts and not hate each other over it. Um, and it, which kind of reminds me, I, I think another thing we tried to say and still saying uh, is that you know, there's quite a bit of talk about laws, you know, which laws we're going to pass and which plans for health care and those things. And those are all important issues, certainly. The, to me, and, and I believe the movement's more important idea is not just to change laws, but to change people, is to change their minds, change their hearts. Um, and rather than focus on some detailed law, I'd, you know, I'd like to see us doing that to try to lower the fear level uh, among all of us. And I, I think that's something that uh, uh, hippie philosophy would certainly support. Well, certainly. And a lot of the hippie philosophy came from the music. Uh, we're speaking with Stuart Rogers. Absolutely. He's got a new book, What Happened to the Hippies? Uh, and, you know, you can't think about the 60s. You can't think about hippies without thinking of Woodstock and the music that came out of that era. Um, we had protest songs. They, they, they were, you know, they were everywhere from, you know, Bob Dylan to, well, you name it. Um, and today, I don't know, maybe I'm just old and stuck in the past musically, um, but I'm not hearing those movement protest songs. I'm not, but, and maybe it's because everything is so fragmented now. There are so many different channels, different ways to get music, to find uh, messages out there that it's not, it's not as simple as it was back in the 60s and 70s where you had your local radio station or you had your three, you know, network television stations. And if you're lucky, a local station and maybe something on the UHF dial. It, it's everything is so fragmented now. Perhaps that's one of the reasons that there's no I don't know. I, I think the community is missing today. Well, that that could certainly be. I agree that uh, I mean the music was essential 
if if you think about first of all, just to digress briefly, the you know what's a hippie and, and where that word come from yeah. and how do you define those people and et cetera. Uh, the the irony is that it, the word hippie is really uh, more defined by other people. It was more likely a word we would have been called than a word we would have called ourselves. Sure, right. Uh, it, right. So uh, there, the the music, in a sense, defined who we are um, by on the basis of what we believed. Uh, there are no membership roles, there's no card, there's no, you know, it's not an organization like the Black Panthers or the SDS or those people. You know, this is more of a, a philosophical, spiritual uh, uh, coordination or, or cohesion. Um, and, you know, as, as a result, you know, one of the ways we defined ourselves was by the music that we listened to mm. and by the lyrics that we believed in. Uh, and exactly why that's not true today, uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I have to believe that the world is progressing. Uh, you know, I do believe that. And even though we don't hear the music, uh, I like to believe that the people uh, are, the, particularly young people, are finding their own ways of recreating themselves, of making the world a, a better place. Uh, so unfortunately, we don't hear it in the music, but um, you know, I hope it's happening anyway. I hope so too. I also hope you know young people are becoming more politically active. Um, for for the last uh, you know couple of decades, actually, voter turnout among young people, the millennials, for instance, don't vote. Um, but we're starting to see a change with the Gen. Zers, <laughs> I don't know what they're they're all called, but the young young people, the the newest crop of you know eighteen to twenty year olds, are seem to be very engaged and seem to be embracing Bernie Sanders, which is kind of a hippie attitude. Well, yeah, uh, you know, I, I again, um, you know, we certainly supported our own anti-war candidates, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the day. And I certainly think that uh, voting is essential. I mean, it's our opportunity to express ourselves. But I, I'm not sure that most of us back in the day, or, or, or even people who perhaps have the same philosophies today, believe that the political system is the answer to right. our problems. True. Uh, in, in a way, that's a, a cop-out. I mean, I'm not saying that voting is bad or that's a cop-out, but that in a way... We're kind of waiting for someone else, a leader, a Congress, or somebody, to fix what's wrong. And in fact, in my opinion, and I think this is consistent with hippie philosophy, um, what's wrong has to do with the relationships we have with people every day. Um, that instead of waiting for a leader to tell us what to do, if, if everybody would just be a little kinder to everybody else, you know, if we just took a little bit more time every day to accept somebody we didn't accept before, to reinforce somebody's good work, to, you know, find a way to improve the world just a little bit every day, uh, those will bring about the kind of changes that, that we're after. And, uh, you know, I, if there's a political movement, I'd like to make it not necessarily just to elect people, but to say, hey, let's do this as individuals every day and be a little more loving and this will be a better world as a result. 
Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a nice thought. <laughs> Just seeing the divides in this country today, I don't know that we can get there. Certainly not, sadly, in my lifetime. Anyway, the book is called What Happened to the Hippies? And as you mentioned, Stuart, the, you started, you wrote some essays, and then you put out the word and collected essays from 53 other hippies. Um, do you have a favorite yes. or story that was submitted to you that's in the book that you could share with us? Oh well, you know there there are quite a few. I'm I'm thinking of a, a man, for example. He has Parkinson's today, mm-hmm. and of course, you know when we were eighteen, nineteen, twenty, whatever, you know, generally most of us were pretty healthy. Uh, and now, as you read stories, you you see that a lot of folks are, are old and and not quite so healthy. This this guy went to look for a new life, and went to a a commune. Uh, and he describes in the book um, just the relationship that he developed with these people and that he was able to express emotions that he wasn't able to do uh, then. Uh, and then he goes on to talk about now uh, where he's not able to do those things anymore, where he can't he used to ride horses, and, and, and now he just imagines it. Um, and yet you, you can still feel through the story that he has the same sense of wonder and uh, love of life that he had then, despite the fact that he he can't can't move very well right. anymore. Mm-hmm. And and you know I think that's that's the the theme in general is that even if we've changed, even if we've you know become less less firm or or you know tired or out of money or whatever our problem is in old age, that that we haven't lost a sense of of wonder and love and hope uh, that perpetuated the the movement to start with. Awesome. The book is called What Happened to the Hippies by Stuart L. Rogers. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for sharing these stories. I I think a lot of people in our age group um, would uh, appreciate the the memories um, and maybe help to inject a little bit of that attitude into today's world. We can certainly use it. Thank you. I I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Have a happy new year. Yeah, you too. Stuart L. Rogers, author and editor of a collection of essays titled, What Happened to the Hippies? We're still here. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today, admitting, yes, that I'm a baby boomer. And I sincerely apologize for the actions of those in my generation who put us in this mess we find ourselves today. It's now up to the millennials and the Gen Xers and the Gen Zers to save us, I guess. Maybe they should watch the Woodstock movie or or read the book or embrace some of that hippie attitude. And with that, oh, that's a perfect segue into the way Brad Friedman always ends the show. Good luck, world.